When I moved from the Chilterns to Norfolk in 2002, one of the things I longed to see was a barn owl on my home patch. They'd become scarce in Middle England, and I missed their pale vigils over the twilit fields. I'd been a year in my new home before I struck lucky. I was tipped off by our window cleaner, who glimpsed the owl most evenings when he was out dog-walking. It proved to be a late riser, only materialising on the cusp of darkness. When I first saw it, the last light from the west was shining through its almost translucent wingtips. I became rhapsodic about the way it was shuttling night and day together, and scribbled down how it seemed to be winnowing the grass, threshing it for food. I was burying the real bird, which would have rapidly starved if it had behaved like a threshing machine, under bushels of thoughtless visual metaphors. I could have done with some scientific ballast at that moment to ground my flights of fancy. So when I'm occasionally called a romantic naturalist, I wonder whether it's an accusation as much as a description. The meticulous observations of the natural scientists corrupted by my overheated imagination. Objectivity compromised by my romantic insistence on making feelings part of the equation. Well, I suppose it depends on what you mean by romanticism. I rather inclined towards Sam Coleridge and John Clare's view that nature isn't a machine to be dispassionately dissected, but a community of which we, the observers, are inextricably part, and that our feelings about that community are a perfectly proper subject for reflection, because they shape our relationship with it. A more troubled relationship now than it ever was for the 18th century romantics. It doesn't seem to me that these ideals conflict with scientific rigour. All of us want to witness and experience the natural world exactly, whatever feelings subsequently follow. But in the real world, marrying the two approaches is tricky work. Can you, for instance, closely observe a living creature without in some way taking it out of context, literally or perceptually? Can emotional engagement with nature amount to a kind of subtle takeover? Is it possible for us to sympathetically take another creature's sensory view of the world without becoming anthropomorphic? Does technology enhance or diminish our sense of kindredness with nature? Running through these conundrums is the issue of the primacy of our senses, the only channels through which we can relate to the physical world. The natural scientist depends on the senses for information but mistrusts their subjectivity and fallibility, and is chiefly interested in how they lead to explanations of nature.